From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, before we start our show, a word from our sponsor. Nestled in the south of France, next to Spain, Roussillon produces a rich diversity of high-quality wines at incredible value. Known for its old vines, the region offers a diverse range of dry wines in all colors and fortified sweet wines known as Vin du Naturel, a long-standing regional specialty. Bringing together a small community of winemaker families, the sunniest region of France is ideal for organic vine growing. Unveil the secrets of Roussillon's incredible wines on its new Instagram page, at Drink Roussillon. I'm a follower. Everyone should be. Um, all right, Zach. So so uh, what's going on, dude? You know, doing well. Uh, moved in, feeling feeling pretty uh, pretty comfortable in the new house. My nice. uh, my son has has already forgotten what the old house looks like, so that's good. Oh, I was that's worried good. it was going to be a little more traumatic for him the move, but he's just young enough that I think he's it's all at least right now a big adventure. So yeah, we're doing good. How about you, man? You know, pretty pretty pumped for just like uh, you know spring. It it definitely today yeah. is a is a colder day, but uh, it, it definitely is spring in New York, which is awesome. And, uh, there's like a, you know, an energy that you can feel, which is cool. Um, you know, people are making plans and talking about potentially going places this summer. And, you know, a lot of people I know now are either, you know, they either had both their, their vaccines or they've gotten one or they're already, you know, they've got their appointments set up. So it really feels like things are moving forward, which is awesome. Do you have uh, travel plans? Not yet. I'm trying to figure that out actually. I want to go somewhere just like I think everybody does, <laughs> Yeah, but, but I, I don't really know where. Um, I, I feel like this summer I still am not 100 on feeling like I'd want to travel to Europe. Um, you know, I feel like their, their rollout's just been slower and I don't want to go to a place where, you know, things are still, there's still potential lockdowns and stuff like that. Um, so I've been talking about a bunch with Naomi about, some places that we enjoy we've enjoyed in the past. Um, I've only ever been to Maine once. That seems to be like the hot place people are going. I don't know, like if that happens in in Seattle, but like all of a sudden, I feel like New Yorkers get this one destination and they all go there. And last summer, it really felt like everyone went to Maine, and I'm seeing that again. And like, you know, obviously, Vine Pair writes a little bit about travel, but all the travel journalists I know, that's all they're writing about is like Maine, 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 Maine. So maybe not, maybe Maine, but uh, maybe everyone's going to be there. So I don't want to be there. Um, <laughs> I also really like the Rhode Finger Island, Lakes. right? Rhode Island. No one ever thinks yeah. about. No, I really like the Finger Lakes a lot. Actually, one of our guests also had a really cool uh, pop up in the Finger Lakes last summer um, that I didn't get oh, to check out because I wasn't that. traveling anywhere um, last summer. But um, I wonder if maybe maybe he'll tell us if they're doing that again this summer. But um, I love that region, so maybe there. Um, you know, I like to go to Virginia because it's also close enough that I can rent a car and drive pretty quickly. And they have an up and coming wine region. I, why am I talking about all my travel having something to do with where there would be alcohol? Because uh, uh, this is the Vine Pair podcast. Yeah, and oh. then if 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 I could if I could do it, I would get on a plane maybe and go to the West Coast. I just don't know, man. How long I I want to sit on a plane with a mask on? I obviously am not anti masker. I have no problem wearing a mask. I'm just talking about for my own comfort. <laughs> if I want, you know, yeah. four and a half or five hours on a plane. Um, so that's it. Have you thought about any travel plans? Yeah, you know, it's funny. The thing you're talking about, that feeling of like all of a sudden stuff is changing. I think for me and and for my wife, because we've been in the, we were like, you know, looking for a house for for a while and, you know, it was sort of like unclear when we would be able to get vaccinated. Then all of a sudden kind of all these things came together. Like we were able to get 
we're eligible to get vaccinated and we bought a house and like now we're moved into the house and it's like oh now we can actually like maybe turn our attention to something that's not just like kind of these big important and maybe not all that fun kind of things to tackle so we've talked a little bit i mean i i am obviously haven't been anywhere in the last year either uh you know there's certainly lots in the in here in washington that i'd like to do I, I would love to. I don't know when it's going to be possible. I'd love going up to British Columbia. Um, I don't know when the border is going to really open again. Yeah. Um, and that may, be a, that may be a later in the year or 2022 thing. Um, California has been calling to me. I mean, I think um, a lot you know, of people so much. Yeah, there's so much there. And and for me, I think it's I, I've just realized that one of the one of the sort of weak points in my in my wine knowledge kind of sadly is a lot of the California wine country that's not sort of north of the Bay. So, you know, I know a fair bit and spend a fair amount of time in that portion, but everything from Monterey to uh, Santa Barbara, et cetera, is just, I mean, I know about it. I've tried some of the wines, but I've never really visited wineries or spent much time there from a wine perspective. And so it's definitely on my list to consider, but uh, you know, if you all have suggestions, uh, you know how to get a hold of us. I'm sure Adam and I would be, happy to consider i don't know maybe uh, or maybe it'll be like an off the beaten path we'll go to like uh you know texas wine country or something who knows yeah man podcast divinepair.com i mean uh yeah I, I i've thought about a bunch of stuff i also thought that you know what i just want to do and we're actually talking about a, a bunch of content around this you know articles and and things like that in the next few months about different travel destinations i also just like i want i might want to go somewhere and just not do anything and let mm and just be able to know that there's really great food and drink and it'd be it, it's kind of amazing how hard that is to figure out to be honest like when you start doing searches online you're like okay i just want to find a place that's, that's nice and comfortable and that i know has great beverage because i care about that and has great food because i care about that and because i also have cooked and done you know all that stuff for the last well over a year and it would be nice to do that, but it, those things are hard to find. Like I'm not that all inclusive person, you know. I don't want to go to the Caribbean and like go to a buffet and things. That's just not my thing. Um, but I wouldn't mind going to a really great, you know, boutique hotel or something in an area that has great restaurants and whatever. I just it's you know, and, and not have to really move that much. Um, I also as <laughs> a, also like for me when I go traveling, especially when there has anything to do with alcohol, right? I am very much. I will never get behind the wheel of a car, even if I have, if I've had one drink. Um, yeah. And so I, w- I like to find places where I can walk or I know that there's transportation or things like that, especially because I lived in New York for geez, 15 years. Like I don't have a car. Right. So I, that yeah. also is even crazier for me. Um, so yeah, I, I take all that. And that, that's kind of hard to find sometimes. So, you know, you never know. <laughs> Anyways, sure. let, let's kick off the show. So um, you want to introduce our guests? I would I would be thrilled to. So we have um, a distinct pleasure of having two really esteemed guests, uh, Master Sommelier Tim Gazer, who uh, in his extensive career has done uh, pretty much everything in the world of wine. Um, and then uh, Caleb Ganser, who's the Sommelier and Wine Director at uh, a bar near and dear to your heart, Adam, La Compagnie de Vincent Naturel in uh, Manhattan, and uh, a bar that I have been to at least, so I got that going for me. Uh, Tim, Caleb, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. So obviously, we, we have you on to talk about uh, a, a really great wine region, Roussillon. But before we jump into that, just because we did mention some things, um, what it, what's going on for both of you just professionally? I guess, Caleb, we'll kick off with you because you were the person I was alluding to when I was talking about the, the project you did in the Finger Lakes. Um, 
you know, what else are you up to or have planned for the next few months? Yeah. So uh, we, we had been going up to the Finger Lakes a fair bit, uh, taking like bus trips, you know, during normal times and bringing folks up, like leave at like 7am, get there, have like a whole day on the ground and then, you know, bring a bunch of loaded people back to the city. And, drop <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was cool to like sort of have that, like that foundation. And then once, you know, the pandemic struck and we couldn't do anything in New York city, like literally couldn't even operate. Um, I noticed that places outside of the city were open. Um, I was like, well, maybe we should just do something really stupid, like try to open up a pop-up in a month or two and run it up there. And we did, and it was great. Um, and this year, you know, just everything's so much more different. We're focusing on just sort of rebuilding the city, you know, getting, getting our you know team back to back together here and, in New York city, you know, we're, we're always looking around to see if there's some other good real estate opportunities and maybe we'll have another wine bar at the end of this. I have no idea. Um, but as far as the finger lakes is concerned, we probably won't, we won't be back this year. Um, hopefully next year it was, it was, it was amazing to have a wine bar in a wine region. That's always been a dream of mine. Um, Yeah, that's really cool. It was just a tease. So, um, hopefully more to come in the future. Very cool. What about you, Tim? Well, you know, last year has been on the laptop because uh, previous to that, 90% of what I do is get on a plane and go somewhere and do something. So I guess the good news is, is that I finished a draft for a tasting book, which I've been oh, cool. you know, trying to do for about 10 years. I don't have a name for it, guys. You got to help me. I think I'm going to call it Peace and Salinity. You think that works? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it could work. And then, you know, I've been working on a huge project for the Wine Institute, um, and just doing a lot of writing and you know here behind the adobe curtain there's not too many people so you know the pandemic hasn't been that bad but still uh you know fortunately we're in a nice house and uh you know it's it's been okay but i still i miss teaching people and seeing people for sure yeah, very much cool so uh let's get into the topic of Roussillon. so um i was i was hoping we could jump off you know basically with the basics uh which is you know can you explain to everyone listening, some people may be very familiar with the region, others not, uh, what the region is, uh, sort of, I mean, where it is. That, that If you started from the beginning of the podcast, which I'm sure you did, you heard the ad at the, the top of the show, which has a little bit to do with, with the descriptions of the region. But can you give us sort of a description of the region, place us at, at what we're, where we are and what we're, we should be thinking about as we have this discussion? Well, yeah, to me, the, the Roussillon, first of all, it's the southernmost wine region in France. It's literally up against the Pyrenees and the Spanish border. And I mean, viticulture goes back to, I think, 6th century BCE when the Greeks showed up. And, uh, you know, it's about 46,000 acres in size. Uh, and, and I think it's also, you know, the, the stigma about the Roussillon is that people mention it with a Languedoc all the time, which is kind of like mentioning Poughkeepsie and Brooklyn in the same breath, right? So, only imagine if Poughkeepsie was like the size of New York, right? So, um, but I, again, it's it's a unique place because it's bordered by the Mediterranean on one side by mountain ranges on the other three sides. So what you've got there is you've got a lot of vineyards planted at elevation and also the influence of the Mediterranean, which is pretty much wind. There's seven different winds there. And that means, you know, there's a lot of organic and biodynamic growing there. Uh, really low yields. The wine quality is amazing for the value of what you pay for a bottle of wine. And uh, I think just a a lot of incredible potential for such uh, an ancient place for wine in France. Very cool. And Caleb, can you give us a little perspective on sort of maybe some of the dominant either varieties or styles of wine that that we would find in Roussillon? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so I would say it's hard to start talking about Roussillon without at least kind of delving into, I think, its most famous export and, and creation, which is, and frankly, uh, its addition to wine culture at large, which was the process of mutage. Um, you know, well before people understood why it was working, they, you know, understood that if you added some distilled uh, booze into a fermenting vessel, uh, it killed the whatever turned the thing into booze and you kept some of the sweetness. Um, and then, of course, the Portuguese got later more famous for that style of wine, which is creating essentially fortified sweet wines. Um, so they've been doing it there for, you know, hundreds of years. And, you know, the market for sweet wine kind of dried up, uh, all puns intended, um, in like the 60s. Um, and so now, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to sell sweet wine, um, which, you know, there's still a little bit of a market for it. You know, there's tasting menus, there's cocktails, there's a lot of different ways. And some people just like to drink it and there's obviously nothing wrong with it, but when tastes change, you know, the market has to change with it. Um, and so they've pivoted a lot to a lot more dry styles. Uh, so you see a lot of Grenache cause they planted that for, for, you know, the, the banules and, and the revisalt and all that, uh, Grenache Blanc, Grenache Gris, uh, you see a lot of Carignan in the region. Uh, you do see some Syrah, Morvedra, um, sometimes some Vermentino, some other sort of, you know, like the, the Mediterranean blend, if you will. Um, but vast majority is Grenache and, you know, Grenache Blanc and Carignan, a lot of the grapes that they would use for, you know, the Vendu Naturel. Um, so I think what's, what's really cool is a lot of people are making the sweet wine still, you know, very much honing the tradition and just keeping that up. But, you know, it's paying the bills is going to be like the drier styles of wine and you know, echoing kind of what Tim was mentioning is you do have tons of low yields, you have, you know, tons of old vine material too, which, you know, sort of like people like the older you get, maybe the less uh, work you do, but the quality is great. So there's only maybe sometimes a bunch or two on each vine, but those, those are such coddled grapes and like, like the purity is insane. Um, so even at all price points, um, I've, I've, I love going to the Roussillon, um, you know, 10, 15, $20 a bottle. It goes a long way there, um, for, for dry whites and reds. So for, for these wines, um, are they are obviously we're consuming them here in the U.S., but are they also widely consumed across France? Are they mostly consumed in the region? Um, I mean, I, it, it seems like I mean, they definitely I mean, the best part about, you know, most producing regions is that they do drink a lot of their own stuff. Um, and I think they make their way around uh, Spain, actually, oddly enough. I mean, Catal so I guess sort of also stepping back, you know, like when you're in the Roussillon, technically you're in France, but culturally you're in you're in catalonia you know like they fly the it's i forget what the name of the flag is but um it's that's the the yellow and red flag uh of catalonia like everywhere and like that's like if you're there like you are catalan first before you are french before you are spanish or whatever so um and they drink a lot in like barcelona like it's like it's very hip to be drinking you know roussillon wines um because it's sort of, sort of like you know their distant cousin um, interesting and you do see a lot of export. I mean, I'll spend a little bit of time in Australia. Uh, you see a lot of Roussillon wines there. Um, the flavors are just, it's like you get the ripeness that you want, uh, that a lot of people sort of ask for, you know, full-bodied reds, full-bodied reds. But you also get acid, you know, like really well-balanced wine. So kind of like we, we have a cab right now that we're pouring that it's a Cabernet blend. Uh, it's from the Roussillon. It's hyper delicious. And it's like it has, it smells almost like, you know, like Chateau Margaux and like Bordeaux. And like, you're like, oh, cool. And you dive in and it's just like zippier, fresh, fresh acidity. Um, which is sort of like the best of both worlds, you know? And is that just due to sort of how much sun they get during the day, but then that it just gets super cool at night? That's very much part of it. And also just, yeah. So there's the, there's the terroir element of sort of what the, what the earth is doing and what the sun mm -hmm. is doing. But there's also, you know, the terroir element that is what the people do. And like, they just, they like really well balanced wines that are sort of fresh and zippy because okay. 
you're eating meat on, and fish almost in, like a lot of the meals there are a little bit of both. So it's like you sometimes you you do need some of that those red fruit flavors, but you also still need it to be light on its feet. Tim, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned before that like one of the things with um, the region is that uh, it gets lumped in with the long dock. And I also think sometimes mm. it gets sort of painted with this brush of like, you know, uh, the region is not outside of maybe the Vin du Naturel, whether it's in Benuel or Salt or whatever, isn't dedicated to quote unquote quality production because there aren't a bunch of AOCs and there's not a lot of famous appellations. But I wonder if, as, especially as Caleb was mentioning, like the, the change in the industry that's happened since those sweet wines became less popular, like, is it a little unfair to say that, well, yeah, there isn't a long history of, of great still wine there because they've only sort of recently started focusing on it? I guess it seems to me that like that argument is kind of hollow because like, sure, they may not have a lot of tradition, but we talk all the time about, you know, regions all over the world that are, you know, <laughs> newer than that and talk about them as great wine regions. Like, I just think sometimes that 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 argument is, you know, it's a little reductive, I suppose. And and I'm just wondering, you know, where, where you see the quality level and and is it um, is it comparable to some to lots of other, you know, maybe um, uh, French wine regions? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> so uh, I think it takes, you know, the Roussillon takes a bad rap because let, let's face it, you know, dry table wines have been made for a long, long time there. But, uh, you know, historically they were van de pay or they were table wines, right? And it's really only within the last 30 years that you have the Côte de Roussillon village and, and this move to quality. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's in the shadow of its history and its neighbor's history. But I think more than anything, people are quickly discovering that, uh, you know, a newer generations of winemakers are going in. They have incredible plant material to work with. They certainly have the, the technology. In many cases, they have the, the money. And, uh, and so they're, they're producing really distinctive wines that are incredible values. So it's funny, you know, uh, Germany, which I pay attention to a lot, you know, Roussillon as a place in France for red wine and rosé is a very, really popular thing. So um, one thing that really strikes me about the Roussillon and that I love about it is that for the next 10 or 20 years and beyond, it's going to be one of the places and maybe the place in France that's going to continue to surprise us that you'll get these small producers that are making incredible wines. Very cool. And I know we, I know it's, it's always hard to say, but is, is that what the, what we're looking at in the region is a lot of smaller producers or are we talking about kind of, you know, larger scale production or, or how does that kind of shake out in Roussillon? Well, I think it's a mix of all of those things. Uh, you know, the, the co-ops are an important factor. I think if you consider that the average land holding for a family is less than three acres, I mean, many people don't have the wherewithal or the equipment to, you know, actually produce wine. So co-ops have been, a, you know, an important factor there for for decades. Uh, at the same time, some of those co-ops now are owned by the growers and they're making really, really good wines. So the model's been turned on its head, you know, and you see that in a place like Alto Adige as well. Um, I just think the, that, uh, <clears throat> again, newer generations of winemakers have incredible plant material to work with. And, uh, you know, I expect great things. So, I mean, obviously one of the things that's become more and more important to a lot of wine consumers is the idea of, and we've talked about this a bunch, you know, in the past few weeks here at Vine Pair, 
uh, sustainability, organics, et cetera, with in, in a region where it is there is so much sunshine and things like that. Do you know how many of the producers are practicing organics? Is is that something that is a priority in this region? Well, you know, I don't have an exact number for that, but I think you know, per all the wine regions in France, it has the the highest percentage by far overall of wow. people who are certified organic. Yeah, and you know, if you think about it for a second, that makes perfect sense because if you've got a really dry um, <clears throat> climate it, because of wind, there's less disease uh, and fungicide type pests pressure. And, uh, you know, it just makes farming organically much easier. Very cool. Um, and like in terms of the, the, the kind of qualities of the wines we've talked about, you know, Caleb sort of, you know, meant you mentioned this sort of bright zippy style. Can we talk a little bit about the, the sweet wines? So I know, um, you know, they're, they're very prized. What are, if, if someone was to try to get into those wines, what would they be looking for? And what kind of price point are they looking at? And what would you eat with those wines? Uh, you know, there are three or four major appellations for them. And, and, you know, I think Caleb pointed out that there's more of these fortified wines produced in the Roussillon than anywhere else in France. Uh, Bagnols is certainly the most well-known one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, you know, fantastic wines. They can be made very fresh and vintage dated. They're called Rimage. Uh, those usually retail for anywhere from, say, $15 to $25. <clears throat> the, you know, the Banyuls Ground Crew, which see much more aging, you know, can be upwards of $30 or $35. Uh, and also those wines, they age incredibly well. You also have wines from the communes of Reef Salt and Mori. Uh, those are made in four different styles, some of them very fresh, uh, especially Muscat. The Reef Salt, uh, it reminds me of Muscat de Baume de Venise, very fresh, very light, wonderful aperitif. And again, uh, the low 20s for suggested retail. But then some of the wines are aged in Solera systems like Sherry. And uh, as a matter of fact, you know, in the past couple of years, I've had uh, uh, a Mori from the 83 vintage that was just spectacular. And oh, wow. suggested retail on that is less than 50 bucks. So oh, that's crazy. You know, even though, <laughs> you know, a sommelier and Caleb would be the first to agree with this, it's like Sisyphus pushing this huge bottle of dessert wine <laughs> up an impossible hill. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is the delicious factor and, you know, the, the pairing possibilities. I think these wines are the best possible wines for the cheese course. And, uh, and there's really no better value for dessert wines on the planet. Well, so I have a question for Caleb actually about that. So, um, you know, how do you, through the company, you know, tr try to explain these kinds of wines to consumers, especially I know the company has a, a younger, well, I guess when I'm there, it feels like it's a, it's a, you know, millennial consumer base, but I'm sure you've served everybody. I mean, you're in Soho. Um, but how do you try to, how, how do you go about explaining these wines, especially the, the dessert wines of annuals to consumers, try to get them in and get excited about the bottles. Absolutely. You know, I mean, like it's, it's, it's definitely uh, a struggle. You know, it's, it's, the, it's so funny. Cause it's like, people are like, Oh no, I don't want anything sweet. I don't want anything sweet. I want dry. They just don't want to pay for anything sweet. Like you'll drop a, if like you just like finishing the meal, like, Hey, you know, Hey, have this on me. They will gulp that down in two seconds and be wanting more. Right. <laughs> like, oh, you don't want to pay for it. You just want it for free. Cool. 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 Um, no, but I mean, so it's like, how do you talk about it? I mean, honestly, we, we, we just push the dry wines. It's just, it is so much easier. 
Yeah. Uh, that being said, I mean, you know, I, I think there's so much place for the sweet wines, um, especially, you know, for a cheese course for, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people are cooking foie gras at their house, but, you know, just like have, have, have an aperitif or even as a digestif, like it's just lovely to have open. The value is insane. Like you can get such old wine for like no money. Um, so, and a lot of people are liking that these days. People like they come in and they just want to like drink the oldest wine we have. And sometimes it's Bordeaux, sometimes it's a sweet port, like whatever they just want old. So that's like definitely a cool thing to check out. You can find, you know, as Tim was mentioning, you know, eighties, uh, wines on the market for well under a hundred dollars. You can even find like early 1900 stuff on the market for even sometimes less than 300. Um, and it's like, there's just so much history and flavor evolution in those bottles. They start to kind of almost take on like a Madeira esque sort of quality, um, for, you know, a fraction of the price. Um, but you know, I think just talking about the dry wines, it's like, you know, getting into the organics a bit, like we love this region because almost always, like there's so many producers that are in, you know, brought into New York and almost always they're organic or biodynamic or just, you know, going the next level, oftentimes, you know, sort of natural leaning, yeah. uh, you know, it's just so I don't say easy, but like there are fewer you know, pressures uh, that, you know, these winemakers have to deal with. Uh, in this area. So they don't, no one wants to use pesticides if they don't have to. No one wants to use fungicides if they don't have to, and they don't have to. So they don't. Um, and the wines are, yeah, just very fresh, delicious, you know, all different price points. Um, you know, and, and I, one other thing I wanted to talk about is all the different, you know, soil types there. Um, only really it's like Alsace and, and Roussillon are the two most complex um, regions in, in all of France with soil types. And it makes sense. They're right on the mountain range. So you just have all this unearthing of, you know, millions of years of geological history, like splayed out all across the region. Um, and so there's a lot of, and it's not the predominant soil type here, but there's a lot of limestone, which, you know, makes even fresher wines. And, you know, it's a little geeky to talk about, but there is a village in the Roussillon called Cals, C-A-L-C-E, which, you know, alludes to the calcium, you know, um, root of the word for limestone. And it's literally a village of like 220 people um, and, and fading. And yet there are six producers in this regional, in this village alone that are just like putting out like some of the most world-class wines at all price points. Uh, the most famous of which is Domaine Gobi, which is, you know, quite widely found and kind of like the godfather in the region. Like you, you know, if you're a young kid. A lot of young people are moving to the area because like they can get land for cheap. They can, you know, produce good wines and they sort of go like work with him for a little bit. And he kind of shows them the ways and he's, you know, biodynamic and just like doing all the right things. Um, and they go on and grow. So it's like, it's just, it's, it's a region that's like also attracting people, especially younger people right now. Um, and they're putting out some awesome, awesome stuff. So um, that's what we like to talk about. That's very cool. Caleb, I have a, a, an additional question kind of in this vein about um, like the evolution of the region as you see it. Like you mentioned that they're, that it's attracting, uh, you know, younger potential winemakers who, who have, who see uh, opportunity in Roussillon that might not be there and more, um, established wine regions. Is it also the case that you're, you're seeing kind of more, I guess, possibility for whether you call it experimentation or just kind of taking stylistic risks? Like sometimes I think about what's exciting about these regions that don't have, you know, crazy high price points is that, you know, people can try stuff and, and it's not the same, you know, they're, they're just not the same, uh, you know, risk, I suppose. Is that, is that your read on it as well? Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of like experimentation, I mean, you definitely see people vinifying grapes that are like already there. You know, I mean, I think what I love about the new generation um, sort of, you know, in Spain a lot too, but which is, you know, like obviously very close, you know, and I think that that sort of spills over into the Roussillon 
um, is the, these young people making, making wines out of grapes that like normally wouldn't really be quote unquote marketable or sellable. It's like, no one's like seeking out, Oh, do you have any Grenache Gris right now? But like, they're just like, Hey, this is what I have. This is the vine material. I'm proud of it. You know, it's, it's putting out a very unique wine and like, it's their job to then as they deem it to sort of, you know, interpret what, what, you know, mother earth is giving them and make it as delicious as possible. So in terms of like experimentation, you know, I think people are just sort of taking the risks with what's already there, which is a, a, a big value add, you know, usually like long-term organically farmed vineyards, tons of old vine material and, you know, beautifully ripened. And then it's just like, don't mess it up in the cellar. And a lot of them are doing that. So I think that's, that's what I sort of see as quote unquote experimentation. And then they're just having fun with how they're marketing it. You know, like sometimes they talk about the grape, sometimes they don't, sometimes they get a colorful label, sometimes they don't. But what I love is that they're just like having fun uh, and just making wines for for the sake of just because they can. And that's that's very attractive to me um, and, and a lot of our guests. That's awesome. So, I mean, obviously you, you talked a lot about, you know, how just delicious these wines are, et cetera. Um, and this is a Catalan region, so they eat a lot of fish and, and meat. For people who are listening at home, what types of dishes – specifically do you think go well with these wines or is this sort of an answer of like, look, these are wines that, that really can play with, with whatever kind of you're, you're in the mood for because of that, you know, high acidity and things like that. But I am curious just to give people sort of an idea of maybe some classic dishes or things that they could think about when they're thinking about these wines and the food they might eat. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off and then I'll definitely yeah, please. what Tim has okay. to say. Um, but you know what, so I, you'd have to divide it up. I mean, mostly into like sort of reds and whites initially, obviously they make rosé. They, make a little bit of sparkling, but mostly it's reds and whites in terms of the dry styles. Um, and the reds, you know, that you do get really ripe fruit flavors and you can like do it with like roast lamb and, and, and sort of, you know, meat, steak, you know, anything, burgers on the grill, whatever. Um, like there's, it's, it's literally like having a pantry fully stocked is the wine region of the Roussillon. It's like, I can pair almost any dish with a wine from this region. Like if you were to give me any region on earth to be like, you can only choose one region and you have to pair it with like a 25 course tasting menu, I'd be like easy, like done deal. Um, so that doesn't like help have a succinct answer. <laughs> One thing good. is the minerality always comes through in this area. I don't know what it is, um, but like there's always this, even in red wines, but especially in the whites, you know, so like I love like really mineral whites with like scallops, like seared scallops and like, uh, you know, a Grenache Gris or, you know, a Carignan Blanc, like give it to me all day. Um, so that's all, I guess I'll leave it there because I could go on forever. <laughs> Yeah, I would just add, and Caleb, you made a lot of great points. Uh, you know, these wines are really the best of both worlds. Uh, for people of us uh, who drink wines and the place has to matter, uh, these wines nail it. But also there's the delicious factor. And I think several of us have mentioned that. To me, you know, the red wines especially are comfort food wines, but they're also chameleons as well. But in terms of comfort food, I think of vitamin P, pork, in every possible form. Um, because just the richness and density of the red wines, the blends really matches the intensity of practically any way you can prepare pork, even things like a pulled pork sandwich. But the acidity, to me, it really makes these wines versatile. And the white wines, especially the ones done in a modern style, where you've got stainless steel, you know, slow cold fermentations, uh, be they cultured or natural, and really just vibrant acidity and very pure and very pristine fruit, but uh, you know, again, mineral driven. So, uh, you know, they'll keep people like us happy, but I think for, you know, someone who just wants a glass of really delicious white wine, I mean, they really score there too. Very cool. And I'm wondering if uh, each of you could offer 
you know, two or three producers. I know, Caleb, you mentioned Domingo Gobi. Are there others that might have some availability? You know, it doesn't have to be every last corner of the U.S., but, you know, we'd love to give our listeners who are excited and interested in trying these wines a few names to look out for. So, um, yeah, Tim, do you, do you have a few suggestions? And then, Caleb, maybe you as well. Yeah, sure. You know, Michel Choupoutier brought a property, I think, in 1999 in uh, one of the villages, the La Tour de France, and it's called Domaine de Bilaro, and uh, making really good wine, red wines. Also, who else? Uh, Domaine de la Rectorie and uh, Mazamiel. I think all three of those are pretty widely available here in the U.S. Excellent. And Caleb, did you have any others you would uh, recommend? I would definitely throw on there... Um... Uh, Domaine de Lorizon is a, it, I mean, it's still a small producer, but the good news is he's gotten uh, picked up by Rosenthal, which I know has good uh, distribution across the U.S. Um, and so I would say def- definitely one that comes to mind. And, and Tim sort of, unfortunately, um, he took a lot of my answers. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you guys aren't supposed well, to talk beforehand. He's just going to steal your I know. Yeah. So, I mean, then I see them, you know, when I'm traveling, whether it's, you know, going to Texas or whatever, I see really good value Roussillon wines, like almost everywhere, uh, which is a very encouraging sign. Very cool. Well, guys, uh, Tim, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us more about Roussillon, giving us a little bit of a, a, a not masterclass, but first first toe dip into the region for those who uh, were familiar with it but also unfamiliar with it uh, we really appreciate it this was a really fun conversation about uh, a wine region that there is a lot to be excited about so thank you both so much thank you thanks for having us of course and zach see you here next week sounds great Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again. Nestled in the south of France, next to Spain, Roussillon produces a rich diversity of high-quality wines at incredible value. Known for its old vines, the region offers a diverse range of dry wines in all colors and fortified sweet wines known as Vin du Naturel, a long-standing regional specialty. Bringing together a small community of winemaker families, the sunniest region of France is ideal for organic vine growing. Unveil the secrets of Roussillon's incredible wines on its new Instagram page, at Drink Roussillon.